Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 212 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Jeffrey Ford, author of novels such as The Girl in the Glass, The Shadow Year, and The Portrait of Mrs. Charbuke. He's also written well over 100 short stories, which have been collected in books such as The Fantasy Writer's Assistant, The Empire of Ice Cream, The Drowned Life, and Crackpot Palace. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new collection, A Natural History of Hell. And now, here's our interview with Jeffrey Ford. All right, so we're here with Jeffrey Ford. Welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing, David? I'm good, good, thanks. Um, Okay, and so your new book is called A Natural History of Hell. So just tell us a bit about how this book came about. Well, it's a collection of stories and, um, you know, that I've written over the last few years. And they all deal a little bit with, uh, you know, the devil, evil, uh, you know, hell, basically the hell of living. You know what I mean? And um, I sent the story into um, the small deer. And they decided to publish it. And um, I was casting around for a, we had a, I have a, I had a title. One of the stories is called The Natural History of Autumn. And um, they said, look, we love the, the book. We sold, we sent it to the distributor. They really liked it and everything. But um, the title, it sounds like people going to visit like New England when the leaves change, you know? So he said, we should come up with a different title for it or use a different story as the title. So we thought about it for a while. And uh, I don't know exactly who it was, whether it was Kelly or Gavin, people who run the press. But somebody came up with the natural history of hell. And I was like, solid, man. That's a, that's a great <laughs> title, one way or the other. And the thing is that it fit. You know what I mean? It fit the book so perfectly. So, you know, the, a lot of the stories were pub- published um in anthologies, uh, on tour.com, uh, different anthologies of work I did with Ellen Datlow and, uh, different editors in, in recent years, you know? Right. Yeah. And so it looks like a number of the stories, as you say, were originally published in theme anthologies. Did any of those themes really inspire you to get the idea for the stories? Well, with the theme anthologies, I mean, a lot of times people are always, um, you know, saying, well, you know, it's better to have an original anthology so you can do whatever you want. But sometimes there's a drawback to that in that when you can do whatever you want, the world is a pretty big open place, you know, and it's hard to nail things down or to, like, focus in on exactly, you know, what it is you're going to do. Sometimes with the themes, uh, they give you this idea and you can work off that and you have kind of an anchor, you know what I mean? So it makes it a little bit, uh, it makes it interesting. You can do original things still within that theme. And, um, you know, and sometimes it comes out just as well as if you have the, uh, the open anthologies. I'll give you an example. I mean, I did a, a story some years ago. Uh, my editor came to me with a story for, uh, or an editor came to me with a story for a YA vampire anthology, right? I mean, is there anything more flayed than vampires? You know, maybe zombies, you know what I mean? And then the YA aspect of it, I was like, eh, I don't know about this. But um, the question then became, 
couldn't I do something then that was seemed original? So it became like kind of a challenge. And sometimes those challenges can lead you to write more interesting, you know, things and more uh, something that, you know, that, that comes out pretty good and that you, that you think is worthwhile. Right. Yeah. And, and obviously reading these stories, you, it's obvious that you've tried very hard not to just do the conventional thing to, to have really. Well, I really try hard not to do the conventional thing anyway. As a matter of fact, I don't even try. <laughs> it's just what I do. I mean, I can't really see spending the time doing this. Like I ain't getting rich doing this, you know, but I can't really see the, spending the time doing it and doing something that other people are doing over and over again. Uh, it's pointless. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, and so the supernatural elements in all of these stories, as I said, are very original or, you know, things I haven't seen before. So, for example, you have these monsters called Jiminken in one of the stories. Could you talk about that? Oh, Jiminken. That's actually a, uh, that is actually like a folkloric uh, creature from Japan. These are dogs with human faces. And the, um, you know, the folklore points to the fact that they probably came about, uh, the belief in them probably came about because there were these traveling carnivals in, um, in Japan in the late 1800s and, uh, mid to late 1800s. And they used, a lot of them used these monkeys like macaques or, you know, these monkeys with very human faces, but like walked around like baboons on all fours, you know? And so they think some of those have had escaped. I think they're all wild monkeys in Japan, too. Anyway, some of these had escaped, and probably people saw them, were unaware what they were, and the myth of this Jin Mankin, this uh, dog with a human face, pops up. A good example is if, if you check out the uh, remake of The Body Snatchers, you know, uh, with Donald Sutherland. There's a great dog with a human face in that movie, but, you know, I think it's a similar idea. And so why did you want to use that kind of that particular monster in, in your story? Well, I had been approached by uh, a, an editor to write a story about Japan, which wouldn't have been my major, my initial inclination, because I really don't know gots about Japan, except for the stuff that influenced me, the books. And I, re I read quite widely in, you know, Japanese literature translation, right? And also the movies. I mean, when I was young. Uh, my brother and I watched all the monster movies and like, you know, Attack of the Mushroom People and all those kind of things. And then later on, got into Kurosawa, you know, Stray Dog and a lot of those great movies that that were done there and the re more recent uh, animated films. So, I mean, I had that and I wanted to write kind of an homage to those crazy horror monster movie things, you know. But then I had to do the research and make it seem real. And when you're dealing with a, another culture, I mean, you really got to be careful. You know what I mean? Um, and when I did it, I wanted to come up with something like a creature that was a real uh, Japanese mythological or folkloric creature and one that hadn't been played up too much. Now, I found out since that there was a guy who did a graphic novel in Japan. I, I'm not familiar with the artist's name. Uh, but uh, had used the Jim Mankin not too long ago. But I wasn't aware of that when I did it, and I thought it was kind of original. So yeah, it was used to be a great site on, online, Pink Tentacle, which was from Japan, that always posted a lot of pictures of, like, Japanese folkloric monsters and stuff. Uh, I don't know if it's still up there. I think it's gone now, but 
I had seen one there and I got the idea from there and then I traced it and found out about it, you know, and then added my own spin to it as well. Well, right. Like the thing, how about the thing about them turning into salt when you kill them? Is that part of the folklore? No, I just made that, <laughs> I made that part up. It's like, um, you know, if you shoot them and they die or they go up in flames, that's kind of normal with monsters. You know what I mean? But you, you, you kill them and they turn to salt. That's kind of unusual, I thought. So I went with that idea. I had to have them have some kind of spectacular destruction, you know, like something weird had to happen to them. Because otherwise people would be driving around seeing a whole bunch of dead dogs with human faces. And that, you know, that kind of ruined, ruined the believability of it, I guess. Not that it was that believable to begin with, but, you know, try to use like a realistic setting and the realistic story to get into it. I always love this kind of like 19th century approach, this kind of creep where, you know, everything's realistic and then slowly the weirdness creeps into the story, you know, that kind of, you have that on one hand. On the other hand, you have the type of story like Kafka's Metamorphosis where the guy just wakes up and he's a cockroach, you know, <laughs> those are the two approaches in horror. Right. Well, and then there were a couple of things also in this book, uh, supernatural aspects. You have Serenity, which is, you say, the language in which angels dream and the Libin, which is a, a kernel of life that flies off uh, out of your head in yeah, the fire. Yeah, those I made up. Those I just made up. Those were made up things. One's in the story, the, um, the fairy enterprise, the Libin is like this. It's like the soul. It's the belief that these people have that it's a soul. You know, like when you burn somebody. Uh, like a body or something, this last kernel of light comes out of it and, you know, and they see it fly off in the night. That's one thing. And the other thing was that serenity is uh, the language the angels dream. And I didn't even know where that came from. That's like from a dream itself, I think. I don't know where that name came from or whatever, but it's just the stuff that comes to you when you're, when you're creating these stories, you know. It's like, a lot of times it's like, well, you know this, a lot, a lot of it's like, you know, dreaming while you're awake, you know, if you get into the right state of mind. Right. I mean, I actually heard you say that your your novel, The Portrait of Mrs. Charbuke, was inspired by a dream, or at least the name was. The name was, I was sitting on the back porch with a friend of mine drinking, and we fell asleep in the chairs that we were in, these rocking chairs. And the next morning, I woke up, and right before I opened my eyes, I had been casting about for a name for the character. Right before I opened my eyes, I heard in my head the voice say, Mrs. Charbuke. And that was it. I really realized that was it. That story about uh, where the painter has to paint the portrait of a woman he can't see who's behind the screen and he can talk to her and she tells him stories and stuff and he's supposed to capture her image. The story that I got from Emily Dickinson, the thing I read about Emily Dickinson, or I thought I read, where this woman, Mabel Loomis Todd, who was her brother's, uh, an affair her brother was having with this woman, that she knew Emily Dickinson her whole life but never saw her except for in her coffin because Emily would hide up around the stairs when she came over to visit. So she knew her as a presence, but she never saw Emily Dickinson while alive. Now, I could have sworn I read that. And I taught Dickinson and stuff and when I went back to find it after writing the book, I could never find it anywhere. So I don't know if I made it up in my mind or I actually read that somewhere. <laughs> well, there's actually a story about Emily Dickinson in this book called A Terror. Could you tell us about that? 
Yeah, the Kara, it's based on um, the, the, the poem, very famous poem by her called, uh, you know, that begins, none of them have titles, but it begins, uh, I could not stop the death, so he kindly stopped for me. And what happened was I, I discovered in her letters, she's writing to Higginson, who was a guy who was a poet at the time, and says to him, I had a terror. And it was like about a year or so before she wrote this, the first draft of this poem. And so I took that and I was like, I tried to create a story around what happens to her that made her create that poem. I could not stop the death, so we kindly stopped for me. And in the poem, death is in a carriage. So death becomes personified in the story. And he needs to get her to help him uh, basically solve a riddle with this, uh, you know, with words, with this child who's kind of like a, I guess like a zombie, you know, has been kept alive by magic, even though uh, he should be dead, this, this child, you know. And um, that's the basis of the story. John Drew Palancard did the illustration, this dynamite illustration for the story. Much more horrifying than the actual story, I think. <laughs> but um, it has the story has a lot about Emily Dickinson in it, and there's a lot of inside jokes. I taught her, her and her work for, you know, 20-something years, and I continuously gathered information about her. So I, that all came to play. I'd read a lot of books about her. And... Uh, I remember when I started teaching, I was like, oh, she's a drag, like this old school mom who really wants to read this. And it wasn't long before I got really interested in her and started gathering this information. And uh, luckily, I saw that thing in the I saw that thing in that letter to Higginson and it just took off from there. You know, it just grew. The whole story grew from there. It's kind of it's a longer story. It's a novelette, I, I think you would call it. Uh, so I think it came out quite good. You know, that one. I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it. And I'm. Glad I got to do it because she's one of my favorite writers. Well, we'll see. Yeah, so say, what is it about her character that made her somebody that you would want to use as a protagonist in the story? Well, first of all, you don't think horror story when you think Emily Dickinson, you know? But I like that dichotomy. The other thing is she was a really unusual person. Um, you know, she was, she was, I don't know if she was really a recluse. That's the mythology about her. But she was, did keep to herself, and she withheld her work, you know, uh, at a time when women were publishing, but they were publishing stuff that was feminine-centric, like, you know, 200 years hence, a, a, a utopia where, or 300 years hence, a utopia where women were equal to men. So there was a lot of political, women's political writing at that time. But Emily... Dickinson didn't want to write that kind of work. She wanted to be a poet, not a feminist poet, not any other kind of poet, just a poet, like all the guys were, you know what I mean? So she withheld her work, and uh, the work is amazing. Really intricate, great wit, uh, really cutting wit at times, and, uh, you know, uh, turns of phrase, really unusual, abrupt changes in the writing. Uh, strange hyphenations and capitalizations. So the work is fascinating. Some of it is beautiful. Some of it is, uh, you know, uh, startling uh, and um, just remarkable woman and and, uh, and work. Right. So I guess I don't know a whole lot about Emily Dickinson's life, 
but this line kind of jumped out at me. You say that dogmatic belief in anything was foreign to her. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, she was very, uh, she, she really had a lot of questions about religion. She didn't go to church after a while, which was really unusual at that time, you know. Uh, she had, you know, basic uh, stuff about societal norms. Uh, she had comments about the society that she lived in. So she was, she questioned everything, you know. Um, and that was a difficult thing for a woman at that time. And uh, she managed to, she she had to withdraw somewhat from the world to be able to live in this world that she needed to to write the poetry, you know. Um, her father was kind of a, kind of a, at the same time, kind of a strict, you know, old school uh, New Englander and uh, would buy her books and then beg her not to read them, you know. So she circumvented his rules somewhat also, and he was like a big patriarch of the house and so forth. So she was a, she was kind of a rebel in a lot of ways, what she did. Yeah. I mean, would you say that you share some of those feelings about religion? I mean, in this book, you have three stories in which religious leaders and or angels, I guess, uh, don't come <laughs> off well. Yeah, well, you know what the thing is? It's like I'm extremely interested in religion, but not as a religion. I like looking at it, and uh, I like reading about it. I love, like, Elaine Pagel's books, History of Religion, and, you know, the ideas involved in it. But as far as the um, the actual practice of it, I don't know. I've never really encountered it in any form that really that really sold that to me. Uh, and I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of heinous, horrible stuff take place in the name of it that I think uh, the world could live without. You know, uh, a lot of a, a lot of um, this dogmatic belief in like, you know, fundamentalist readings of things that were written thousands of years ago and translated through three or four languages. And this is what people are going to live and die by and, like, kill each other over and so forth. It doesn't seem to make much sense to me in a 21st century world. Or it didn't even make sense to me in a 20th century world, you know? Well, I mean, for example, in your story, The Blameless, it's about a couple and they go to their neighbor's exorcism for their daughter. Um, but there's a line where the main character says, with these people, everything's an infraction. If you sneeze and fart at the same time, you're cut out of the rapture. Yeah. Well, you know, had a lot of neighbors who were like that, actually. You know, it's, uh, you know, Baptists and uh, people who are really letter of the law. I mean, for them, it works, I guess. I, You know, I have no, nothing against people being into that. But for myself personally, it seems a little strict. I'm, I'm much more of a person who, uh, who who's willing to give, like, people the benefit of the doubt and understand that everybody's got foibles, you know? There's a lot of this kind of, like, uh, self-righteousness that comes off and then you scratch the surface and underneath these people are fucking up just like everybody else you know <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah yeah um i mean one interesting thing i want to mention about this book is that you use yourself as a character in two of the stories could you talk about that yeah i do this um quite i've done this quite a bit and less now because i did it quite a lot for a while but i still do it occasionally um it's a technique I learned from reading stories by Isaac Bashir, the singer. 
I mean, he does this a lot in his stories. Uh, he has these set of stories that that take place in uh, New York after he's emigrated to New York, and uh, a lot of them are supernatural stories. But he, one of the ways he builds the believability in the story is by presenting himself as the main character and interacting. So it becomes like he is sitting across the table from him, uh, you know, having a cup of coffee. He's telling you the story, which when the creepiness or the strangeness comes into it, it's believable in a way, you know? So I copied that, that uh, approach that he had and used it in quite a few stories. It's very, I found it to be very effective and people, you know, I've said that they, they like it, but it was difficult to, to get a handle on it in the beginning. So, uh, but that's where it can't, that's where it comes from. And I like doing it. I mean, because you know, the thing is people have expectations about the character and then they hear that if the character is the author, how much of this is possibly true. I mean, I'm, in truth, not a lot of it is, is actually the truth or not a lot of it actually happened, but uh, people have tendency to believe that some of it is my life and so forth, which plays with the reader's mind to some extent. You know, it's, there's a reason they call it fiction. <laughs> so, you know, you can use all the tools at your disposal and sometimes you have to be a little crafty about it, you know, uh, to get different effects. So, you know, uh, if they want to believe that, that's fine with me. That adds to the story, uh, adds another dimension to the story sometimes, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, so in your story, Word Doll, for example, it has you living out in the countryside. And, and that's true, I believe, right? Because I remember yeah. when you moved, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I I wrote that story, a couple other ones about Ohio when I moved out there. I mean, I came from Jersey. I grew up on Long Island. And then we moved out to Ohio and we're living in this hundred plus year old farmhouse surrounded by farms and stuff. It was a real culture shock to me, but you know, I got a sense from the place being a, a writer who writes, you know, speculative stuff and, uh, you know, things about ghosts and monsters and stuff that there was a real sentience to this land. This land was really relied on by people for a long time. I live in this area that was called the Ohio till plain, which is one of the most fertile areas in the country. And uh, people have been there for, you know, generations. The, the farm that we lived that farmhouse that we lived in, that farm was farmed like, I don't know, 200 years ago or something like that, you know, by the same family uh, doing the same techniques that they use today, which was all no, no uh, irrigation, no sprinklers or any of that stuff. It's all goes by the weather. Whatever the weather does, that's what they count on, you know. And so there's this kind of sentience to the place. And I tapped into that and the history of uh, a rural community, of an agrarian community like that, and, uh, you know, was able to get a couple of stories out of that and get my bearings in Ohio through that. Because, you know, anybody, if you think about it, like sometimes the, the countryside can be very creepy, especially if you like, like grew up on Long Island like mm -hmm. me. You know, it's like, I know there's a, that part in that movie where Woody Allen's talking about, like, let's go, I think Danny Hall, she says, let's go out to the country. He goes, I don't want to go out there. It's dark and there's bugs and stuff. You know, mm -hmm. it's creepy. So that's kind of the feeling I had. And I tried to utilize that. I tried to play off of that. Plus, it's, it's stark in the winter. You have these enormous fields. I mean, they go on for miles. And there's nothing in them after they, you know, they, they harvest the stuff. Then the snow comes down. And the wind cuts across those fields. 
And man, you could get, uh, you know, it's a great place for creepy stories and ghost stories and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I actually, I live in a house that's very new and that no one's ever died in, so I figure I'm pretty safe from ghosts. That's my <laughs> advantage. Yeah, that's a good move. Good move. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also wanted to ask you about your story, Rocket Ship to Hell, which is another one of these stories that feature you as a character. And this deals a lot with, or at least a fair amount with science fiction writers and science fiction culture. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where that story came from. I mean, I, I did, oh yeah, um, Anne Vandermeer, who's an editor at Tor, um, asked me to do a, they did a, they wanted a 60th anniversary story about a rocket ship, you know? So I wrote this one about kind of a commentary, I guess, not really consciously, but kind of a commentary on science fiction, how it's changed, you know, in recent years. I I can feel it myself from when I first got into the field and I knew I had met guys like Hal Clement and, uh, you know, guys who were, were writing when I was a kid and getting the books out of the library and stuff. And I felt that there was a real sea change going on with the younger writers that I was seeing. So I was kind of in the middle. I saw the old guys. I see the new guys. You know what I mean? I was trying to capture that, how things have changed uh, from when I first got into it and what I knew of it as a kid to where people were going with it now. It's not, doesn't have the same concerns. It, the stuff that was big back in the old days, like rocket ships and, you know, space stations and that kind of stuff, that got transformed through like the tech culture and, uh, you know, these new different forms of story types of stories you could write about science and science fiction and so forth. And then how that's also changed into more social science fiction in more recent years, you know? So I tried to chart that through some of the writers I know. And, uh, and I tried to make it so that it seemed real so that there was a book about this thing that was published by Ace, and Ace used to do those those double-sided... Have you ever seen the Ace Doubles? Uh, you know, I've it? never actually seen one. I mean, I've heard all about uh, them, of too course. Too young for those, but Ace was very famous. They did these Ace Doubles where you had a story on either side, a novel on either side of the book, and you turned it around. So I created this story about this guy who is a writer, and he gets involved with this privately owned space shot where they're going to send artists into outer space to experience it. This was a big thing that people discussed when I was a kid, actually, about the space program. Anyway, they do that, and, uh, you know, the guy writes a novel about it, but nobody knows about the, 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 the space shot that goes on. It goes horribly wrong, and people die and everything. And he writes, you know, the book about it, and he publishes it through that company, but they stop it because they don't want anybody to know that it's happened. But a couple of copies slip out. And the story takes place at a convention in Philadelphia around one of the copies of those books and one of the guys, the one of the writers, the writer who was involved in it. So, you know, I mentioned guys that I know, like uh, Michael Swanwick, who lives in Philly, and, you know, the, the bookseller Joe Berlant's in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, different people from the field, you know, to make it, give it that sense of uh, of reality. It's it's kind of comic too, you know. It's very it's, it's a little bit comic and uh, you know satirical in a way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned how there's been this transition away from rocket ships and space stations and things, and you have one of the older science fiction writer characters in the story refer to slipstream writing as drivel and the lime jello of the subgenres. 
Yeah, well, it's the kind of stuff I write, so I'm getting getting <laughs> down on myself, <laughs> you know, or at least I've come, I came out of that school, you know what I mean? That that change, that sea change in it. Uh, but yeah, you know, that's what I think those guys think about it. Uh, you know, the, the stuff it's like, you know, that's ruined science fiction. Where's the ray guns? Where's the, you know, where's the rocket ships and stuff? Yeah, I, I mean, is that just something you you just have a sense of that, or has anyone ever? No, so I mean, that's I your face, sense. or? Well, here's the thing. I mean, it's like when you're writing and you're, you know, you're doing, you're publishing a lot of stuff and you, you're you're in the middle of it. Um, you know, what happens is eventually the field changes and you have to keep up with it or it changes around you and it's not for you what it used to be, you know? And so that happens, I think, eventually to everybody, to most people. I mean, there are writers, I, I guess, who, I mean, like Gene Wolfe is still turning out novels that are probably amazing. I haven't read anything by him in recent years, but, you know, there are guys like that who are very unusual, or I doubt Ted Chang is ever going to, you know, not be, uh, you know, in the middle of, of science fiction. But I see, like, people who wrote, like, Cyberpunk, uh, what was it called? You know, Gibson and that yeah, stuff. Cyberpunk, Cyberpunk. Yeah, Yeah. I see that kind of, I mean, people really made a killing in that stuff uh, you know, creatively and monetarily when it was big, but now it's not that big anymore. So it moves around, around them. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, in the horror field, when Stephen King hit big, I remember guys telling me, I know guys who told me about that. They said, if you wrote anything that seemed like horror, you could get it published. I mean, it was just huge. You know, you could make money on whatever. But it's moved on from it moved on from and now it's starting to come back with a whole new set of writers, you know. But those guys, a lot of those guys were left high and dry because that's that was their bread and butter. That's what they did, you know. And then when the time moves on, it gets sad for them because you know it's not the same anymore. Yeah, I, I heard this funny story where every year at this particular convention they would have a panel called "What Do Readers Want Now" or something like that. And every year it was all these young writers who were trying to break in. And then Jack Williamson, who was in his 90s, I think. And he <laughs> was someone who was all, you know, who, who who kept with the trends decade after decade after decade. Well, you see, I, I can't answer that. I can't talk about that because I never read a thing by Williamson. <laughs> but I know I know who he is and I, you know, have a lot of respect for him. Anybody that can stick with it for like 100 years almost that he did, you know, I take my hat off to him. But I really don't know. You talk about you're talking about probably at the Worldcon, which I don't usually go to. It's too huge for me. You know, it's too giant. It's always been too imposing to me. And I don't really write a lot of science fiction, so you know, I, it's never, I don't really know that much about that. I'm sorry. Hmm. Well, no, it's in, I wanted to ask you about that because you you have the Jeff Ford character in that story. Say, my knowledge of the genre was minimal. I mean, that's that's sort of how you see it. Yeah, when I got into it, I mean, you know, you talk to me about Asimov, Heinlein, these guys that like everybody gets down on their knees to. I, could, I wouldn't give you a red cent for either one of them. I mean, I think their writing is boring, you know? Uh, another another uh, figure, Ursula Le Guin, I can't read her stuff. I mean, it just seems very distant to me. I'm sure she doesn't give a damn, you know? And I have a lot of respect for her because as a person, she's pretty tremendous as well. But, you know, her writing, I just can't get with it. Um as far as like, you know, some kind of background in the genre, I don't have it. I, you know, I read a couple of books when I was a kid, not the kind of stuff that was groundbreaking. You know, I read like Adam Link and like, you know, Space Paw by Gordon Dixon, 
you know, just basically reading books. I did a lot more reading in literature and so forth and, uh, you know, brought that to bear. And that's one of the things I think helped me is because I was coming at it from left field. I had all this bag of tricks from outside the genre, whereas, you know, the genre had been going on as is for probably about like, you know, 50 years uh, to that point. And a lot of it was regurgitated. It was like, you know, they would mix it up again. And then, you know, came at it from a different point of view. Not like I was the first one to do this. I mean, you know, many people before had done this, but I think that gave me an advantage when I started. And, uh, you know, I only like what I like. And anybody who tells you if you want to be, you know, a writer of fantasy and science fiction or weird or whatever it is, that you got to go and read the genre, I say bullshit to that. I say, you know, read what you like to read, read what interests you, what gets you excited, and then form a story from that. I mean, you can read anything and create a horror story, you know what I mean? You don't have to really read horror to write a horror story. The only thing you're going to get out of it is it will teach you uh, those things, those, those things that are cliche or those things that are played, you know, knowing what's been done before you. But who knows? Maybe you'll do uh, a story in a particular subgenre uh, that might have seemed cliched before, but because you're coming to it from a fresh angle, you might do a completely new thing. You know what I mean? And make it great. Like the, the example I use a lot, which is getting old now, is you know the the vampire story. But I saw this uh, this film, the uh, Let the Right One In. You know, it's a foreign film with these kids as vampire, the kid as the vampire. I mean, at the time I saw that, it blew my mind. I was like, you know, I, I was, I thought this vampire thing was pretty freaking played out by that point. And this guy came along and did something brand new with it. So I don't know. I don't, that whole thing of like, I, I think people should have a healthy disrespect for, uh, you know, for the past and for, um, you know, for what's considered fantastic, you know, there's something about the genre that's self-congratulatory, um, history, historical, uh, you know, uh, paying homage to, uh, you know, writers of the past and stuff. I think it's way too overplayed, especially in science fiction. I think it's way too influential. Well, I mean, in that story, though, you do seem to know a lot about the history of the field. You mentioned the ace doubles and these pulp illustrators and stuff. Did you are you faking that? Did you have to do a bunch of research for that? Or is that you've picked up some things yeah, over the I years? I, I did research. I mean, but here's the thing. I mean, I've been doing this for a while and I've talked to people, you know, at the conventions and stuff. And whenever I get in a situation where I'm sitting with guys, with writers, men, women, whatever, who are who have been in the genre for a long time and are talking about it in the past? I always shut up and listen because that way you can learn things, you know. And it's not at that point. It's not um. It's not so much about the historical aspects of the past, but how people were at a certain time and and uh, how they got by and things that didn't really pertain so much to publishing as to their lives as writers, you know. So I like to listen to that. So I got that from them. And then I would do, do research on uh, on different things and try to work it out so it would all make sense at the end. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Well, so so given that you didn't have a real strong background in science fiction, how did you wind up publishing so much stuff in fantasy and science fiction magazines and books and things? Well, here's what happened when I started. Um, when I started out writing, I was writing short stories, and I I always had a bent toward that, and always liked the fantastic, you know, and use of it. I but I mean, there's so much quote unquote literary stuff that has great, you know, fantasy and horror and stuff involved in it. I always liked those aspects of those books. They would never be considered genre books, but I mean, you know, they had like scares and they had uh, wild imaginative things in them. So I always liked that aspect of it. So I was doing what I thought were kind of odd stories and I sent them to literary magazines and I published some in there and I sent some of the stories to, um, you know, genre, small genre press magazines. And they were kind of uh, different for the time period. And what I found was, I was taking a chance on some of these stories, but what I found was, you know, the, the genre magazines were far more uh, willing to take a chance on something different than the literary magazines were. And that's one of the things that drew me to that. But I also did this thing where I kind of like took those two, two like elements of the, my writing just kind of mashed them together, you know, and that's when I started to have some success with it, you know, with the publishing and so forth. And the the first book I really published through Avon was The Physiognomy, which was written as kind of, a, it was published as a literary novel and then, uh, you know, was only reviewed by, by genre reviewers. So, you know, then I became a genre writer overnight and I found out what the difference was about $5,000 in the advance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's basically how I, I came to it. But you can, you know, you can do anything in a genre story that you can do in any kind of other story. You can do, it's wide open. You can do anything. I think people like limit themselves sometimes with, like, I can't do that because this is a science fiction story or something like that, you know. That kind of head, you know, it's, it's limited after a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also wanted to ask you about your story, The Last Triangle. It has this um, this interesting premise where you there's this idea of the magical circle that you're safe inside. I mean, it's a triangle in this case. Um, but then you you add this twist that you you have to stay in this circle forever, or else you die if you step out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a story about a. Um, a guy who's a heroin addict and he, you know, he's looking for a fix and he's down on his luck and he's out in the cold and, you know, he's trying to steal things from this, basically this kind of suburban kind of maybe a bit of a little more like urban, urban suburban area, like steal people's outside furniture and sell it and stuff like that. And he gets sick one night cause he can't get a fix. He winds up in this old woman's garage. And she finds him in there. She knows what's wrong with him. And uh, she lets him stay until he gets better. But he can't do it. You know, can't do it. So he goes through withdrawal. And I did, a, I did a lot of research on this. But a good friend of mine, a New York writer, uh, had been a heroin addict and come off of it and gave me some real insight into how this worked, you know, how the withdrawal process worked. So he gets off of it, but then he realizes that this woman is keeping him there because she's got plans for him. And 
she realizes that this thing that she was involved with with this guy years ago, this guy who was involved in magic is back in a way. And in this town, she sees signs of it around. And she gets enlists this guy, the young guy, to help her. She's an older woman, and she enlists this young guy to help her uh, try to, you know, figure out what's going on and to kind of break the spell. And, uh, you know, you could, people could, I don't want to give the story away, but that's what's going on there. Where that story came from, I got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I really have no idea what that was. Yeah, and the character. I mean, I, I thought it was an interesting dynamic, this this junkie who sleeps in this garage and then this older woman taking care of him. Was that just something that came out of your imagination, or did that was that inspired by anything? Well, you know, um, the, the older woman really kind of has it together as a person, you know, except for this aspect of her life from the past. And I know people like that, you know. She has it together, she's directed, and he's not. She's everything he's not. I thought the dichotomy of having like somebody young, uh, you know, and somebody much older uh, teaming up. I thought that would be cool. Like kind of buddy, you know, like they have buddy flicks, you know, (laughs) I thought this was an interesting kind of buddy story, you know, uh, with this older woman and this young guy and see what, see what happens. It's an, actually, you know, it's an idea for a story I had for years. Actually, I wanted to write something like this and I just never did. Uh, and it came out, you know, in this form, in this particular story, now that I think about it. Yeah, well, I mean, that is an interesting buddy dynamic because, you know, older women don't tend to be featured prominently in, in movies and things. And so, you know, it's kind of an interesting, you know, it's not the conventional thing that you see in stories like that. Well, you know, as as I get older, uh, I wonder the same thing. Why aren't there more old people in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> You know, they seem to look a lot, they seem to be a lot cooler to me as I, <laughs> as I move on in years. So, yeah, why not? But it was, uh, it was a neat dynamic for their age, but also their personalities, you know, played off each other, I thought, pretty well. So it was fun to write that story. It came out pretty quickly, you know. There's a certain humor you can get out of it. I like to in- infuse the stories with humor because... Uh, you know, one of the problems I have with some some of the writing I see today is like there's a lot of the horror writing, not the really good guys, but I mean, a lot of the horror writing is like it's just grim beyond grim because I think those people think that unrelentingly grim stuff is profound, you know, and uh, the problem is, is like it's not profound because it's not really like life. I mean, life isn't that unrelentingly grim constantly. I mean, I know in bad times and sad times, I could always find the laugh somewhere in something, you know, and I think most people do. Uh, so, I, you know, you have to get the humor in there to get the, the fully three-dimensional rounded world that, you know, that we live in. I try to, you know, humor is is very helpful, in, especially in writing horror stories and or in writing, uh, you know, fantasy, science fiction kind of stuff. It's, uh, I guess in any story, it's it's it leavens it. it. It adds a little bit, you know, another aspect to it. Well, right. And speaking of finding the humor in the unrelentingly grim, that kind of reminds me of your story, Blood Drive. You want to tell us about that? <laughs> yeah, this is a story where, you know, kids are allowed to bring pack guns in the last year of high school. And, uh, you know, when this story came out, uh, somebody, some 
buddy who was reviewing it said, you know, I just don't, I, I kind of like the writing this story. I just don't really think that this could ever really happen. But at the same time, they were passing these laws in certain states where you could carry guns at college campuses, you know? What's the next step? Uh, you know, it was a co- commentary on that. It came, the story came out, it was in the Santhology after, which dealt with, um, you, with uh, you know, post-apocalyptic and dystopian stories. So mine, I guess, would be considered a, a dystopian story, this anthology after, which was edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling. And, uh, you know, at the time, there was that shooting in Colorado, uh, you know, by the guy who, I think he was supposed to be like the Joker or something. That guy, I can't remember his name, but I mean, he basically looks like Ronald McDonald. You know what I mean? You know the dude I'm talking about? Yeah, I think his name was James Holmes, something like that. That's right. That's the one, yeah. And I was like, you know, people are getting ridiculous with this stuff. And, they, you know, there's people in their truculent ignorance to, like, to, uh, you know, to get this, to, to make this point about guns were passing ridiculous laws. Um, and I don't really have anything against people owning guns. I mean, my neighbors where I live own guns. I mean, they shoot out in their fields and stuff like that. It doesn't bother me in the least. They know what they're doing with them. They use them. Uh, they've been brought up with them. They know exactly what to do with them, you know. But all of this stuff about, like, carrying your AR-15 to the fucking grocery store to make a point, like, really, who needs to do that, you know? Unless you're living in some war zone, I could see it, but, you know, ridiculous. So the the one that really moved me to write it was the idea of passing laws where they wanted people to, you know, they were allowing people to carry guns on college campuses. Now, I was a college teacher for a long time, and I knew the level of maturity of certain students that I had. And also, you know, you got a nice mix of nut jobs in there, too. And so I just saw myself, you know, uh, they passed this law. It's not going to be long before people start shooting each other with this, you know. So uh, that's what was behind the story. And it came out two weeks before Sandy Hook. And I felt bad about that. You know, people reading it after maybe encountering it after that incident. In a way, though, I wasn't because I think the commentary in the story or what the story is about is still important. I'd like to see the day where that story, nobody understands what the hell's going on in it. You know what I mean? Like it's so passe and useless that it would never be reprinted again. I'd love to see that day. But, I, I mean, it's not today. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, you'll often have people who will say that they think it's not artistic or something for a story to have a clear political message. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, it depends on how you go about it. I mean, there's a lot of humor in that story, too, but it's grim. You know, it's a very grim story. And there are characters, and they have concerns. I mean, and uh, there are there's a whole love story that goes on between two girls in that story who are in the high school so there's a lot of stuff happening in there. But I'm just saying, like, it's not really a political in the sense that I'm making a campaign speech with it. But that's the thing that drove me to write it. You know, those are the things that bubbled up in me to write that story. That one's a little bit more on the verge of that. There's another story I wrote called uh, The Drowned Life about, you know, which was definitely influenced by the Bush administration and the years of living through that mess. 
and the frustration of living through it. It was really depressing. I mean, you, you lived through that. You remember yeah. what was going on there with the wars and all that. You know, it was crazy, bad. I mean, and there's nothing in that story that references that, but that's where the in- influence came from, the inspiration came from. Because it seemed to me at that time that the U.S. was going right down the toilet, you know? Um, so that's what, that's what, you know, influenced me. So a lot of times you'll have a story that'll be influenced by something, you know, that's an issue in the culture. As long as you're not writing it like it's a headline and it's like, it's like you're trying to teach people a lesson with it. Uh, you know, I think you can create art as art from that at times. It's not my main way of doing things, but sometimes you just got to write stuff. You know, you just have to write this story, but it has to have all the things working in a character. has to have humor. It has to have, you know, uh, setting, interesting settings and so forth. So, you know, it could be a work of art. It could be a cardboard, you know, uh, lecture on something. You don't want that. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. No, and I love that story, The Drowned Life. That's one that's really, really stuck with me over the years. Um... Do you think uh, after Trump becomes president, you'll have material for some more stories like that? After Trump is? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Maybe. I, I'm sure I will. I probably have one before he becomes president. But, you know, or whoever else. It depends on, you know, what's going on. I mean, let's face it. With the events of the last couple of days, you know, if that doesn't drive people to write stories, uh the, the, the madness of the whole thing that, you know, that went on in the last like five days, right. Or four days. I mean, what's it gotta be to get you to express yourself about something? I mean, art might be the only outlet that actually allows you to express yourself effectively with something like that. You know, the shootings of the two guys, uh, one in Minnesota, the other was in Baton Rouge. And then this response of snipers shooting police from the roof and all this stuff. I mean, it's really getting crazy out there, on, you know, in every way. So, uh, you know, if that, you, you got to have some kind of, if you have an art form that, that allows you to survive in a crazy world like that, allows you to express yourself and get some of this stuff out. Right. Well, I mean, there's, there's this talking point that uh, an armed society is a polite society. And I just I'm I'm honestly curious if there are any examples of that working in in practice where people everyone's walking around with guns and there's very low levels of gun violence. I, I'm not aware of any situations where that has actually happened. Well, in armed society, I mean, check out like um, you know, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, which you know probably pretty close to what it was like in those days out west. You know, life was cheap. And uh, it's too easy to like, you know, just blow somebody away. I don't, I don't buy that. Yeah, I don't think. You know, the thing is, like I said, I don't have anything against people owning guns, but it's like there's a place for them. I don't think it's in the school or the grocery store. You know, uh, it just doesn't seem right to me. I don't know. If if you gotta have, if you have every kid, if every kid's gotta bring a gun to school for a society to work, there's something really sick about that. If if a guy's got to if he's got to pack heat to go to like pick up a gallon of milk, that's fucked up, you know. Uh, and there's stores where I live in Ohio that allow open carry, you know, in the store. And they had an incident already where this guy shot up the chicken, 
aisle. I don't know, one of the aisles there. Imagine going to the grocery store to pick up some spaghetti and, like, falling into a hail of bullets. I mean, the last thing you expect, you know? Yeah. So when you write stories that deal with some of these hot-button topics like guns or religion, do you get angry responses from people? Or, or what kind of responses do you get from readers? Listen, I would love to get an angry response from somebody, <laughs> but, you know, that's that's cake. Uh but you don't get much response at all. I mean, sometimes what you usually get is people who don't agree with you will say there's something wrong with the story and that's about it, you know? Like I like the guy is like, I can't believe that this would ever really happen, so therefore it's a lousy story, you know? Uh, that's about what you get. Uh, I'd like to, perhaps my stuff, I mean, I'm not all that well-known as a writer, but Maybe if I was better known and some of this stuff was seen by more people, I would get more response. I don't want them to be too angry, though. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I prefer the people who are angry not be the ones carrying guns. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so Jeff, if someone wants to send you an angry response to anything that you've said here, uh, how can they uh, get in touch with you? Okay. Um, I have a Facebook page, uh, just uh, Jeffrey Ford. I'm on Twitter, Jeffrey Ford 8, I think it is. Uh, and I have a, um, you know, those two places would be probably the best places to get me. Uh, when I say get me, I mean get me. <laughs> and uh, I have a website. I don't really have a, um, you know, I don't have posted a, a, an email on there. But if you see the website, wellbuiltcity.com, I'll try to get a, uh, you know, a special email put up on that. So if anybody wants to write in and complain or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, be the, be my guest. You know, I'd be li I'll listen to anything once. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And so we're all out of time. So just, Jeff, do you have any final thoughts or any other projects you want to mention? Uh, I'm working on something now. I don't really want to talk about it because I'm in the middle of it. But um, I hope people go and check out the, the you know, the collection of stories and, uh, and, and see what they think about it. And if they want to get in touch with me and let me know, that would be fantastic. But thanks a lot for uh, the interview. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So Jeff's collection, once again, it's called A Natural History of Hell. And the author is Jeffrey Ford. So Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot. And that was our interview. So a big thanks again to Jeffrey Ford for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. Almost 200 listeners are currently supporting us on Patreon, and almost 150 have supported us via PayPal. So big thanks to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.